good afternoon. Uh, you are now listening to Objection to the Rule. This is your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Jasmine, and I'm here with my co-host, Emily. Reese is out this week, but we will get to hear her voice a little later. So, Emily, it's just the two of us right now. How are you doing? Just the two of us. I'm good. We haven't had a show just the two of us for a while, I think. We can make it if we try. Um, yeah, it's just the two of us. It's been raining for like four weeks straight here in Spain. I've seen the sun like twice. Um, so my emotional state is a little is a little all over the place. And I also just got the news alert seven minutes ago. R.I.P. Madeleine Albright, the first woman to serve as sec- U.S. Secretary of State. All right. Yeah. So on this week's show, uh, and for local news, we're talking about a clean air project to deal with idling commercial vehicles in New York. Uh, for national news, we'll be discussing uh, Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court. For world news, we're discussing the Taliban canceling higher education for girls. And for good news, we, we have um, an interesting story about an old shipwreck. Yes. Uh, so, Emily, why don't you go go ahead with the local news? All righty. So uh, the story comes from a March 19th New York Times article by Michael Wilson titled 8750 for three minutes inside the hot market for videos of idling trucks a new york city clean air program allows citizens to report idling commercial vehicles in exchange for a cut of the fines some drivers respond with fists um so the article starts off with a pretty cinematic scene i was like reading it and i was like this author had a lot of fun putting this together so quote A white-paneled truck sat motionless and idling in Midtown on a recent morning, its driver wrapped up in his phone and oblivious to what was happening outside. There in the street, Paul Slapicus was was stalking his prey. Wire-thin and 81 years old, Mr. Slapicus stood in front of the truck like a lost tourist, a camera dangling around his neck and a map sticking out of his jacket pocket. He appeared to be deep in conversation on an old flip phone. Big hand gestures, a peek at a watch, a crane of the neck like he's looking for a friend. After exactly three minutes and ten seconds, Mr. Slapicus, a lifelong New Yorker who lives a few miles away in Queens, snapped the phone shut, tapped the screen of his watch, and walked away. If everything goes as it should, he just earned $87.50 and maybe more for those few minutes of time, and the company that owns the truck will receive a fine of at least $350 that it never saw coming. But for now, Mr. Slapicus is off down the block, a bounty hunter jauntily seeking his next target. Easy picking, said the former Marine and retired computer specialist from from Woodside. Uh, so the article goes on to explain, quote, I'm sorry, I'm cracking. Yeah, I know. Isn't it so good? Isn't it so good? I like... Uh, anyway, so the article goes on to explain that this is a scene from the city's benign-sounding but often raucous Citizens Air Complaint Program, a public health campaign that invites and pays people to report trucks that are parked and idling for more than three minutes or one minute if outside of school. Those who report collect 25% of any fine against a truck by submitting a video just over three minutes in length that shows the engine is running and the name of the company on the door. The program has vastly increased the number of complaints of idling trucks sent to the city from just a handful before its creation in 2018 to more than 12,000 last year. 
Uh, some of these, some of those complaints turn menacing when truck drivers react. I go out thinking I'm going to get assaulted, said Miss, said Ernest Weld, 47, an environmental attorney. I've had my bag stolen by truck drivers. I've been physically assaulted. I've had to call the police a couple of times. Uh, quote, idling vehicles in the United States are believed to collectively expel millions of tons of carbon dioxide a year, and researchers have estimated that eliminating uh, excessive idling from personal vehicles alone would have a similar impact to taking 5 million of the country's 250 million cars off the streets. Several states have laws against excessive idling, but few have citizen outsourcing programs like New York City. The program and the increased interest in, file, in filing complaints have brought a new game of cat and mouse to the city streets as citizens report, as citizen reporters prowl in search of idling trucks and drivers, perhaps stung by past fines, uh, perhaps stung by past fines or increasingly wary of people with cameras. New levels of stealth have come into play, like Mr. Slapicus's Taurus disguise. The camera around his neck has no film. The flip phone does not work. They are distractions from what is really going on, which he has asked, which he asked not to be, uh, not be explained in detail and thus revealed to the truck drivers. Suffice, suffice it to say that it involves an iPhone that he is not holding in his hands while it records. And lots of pretend calls on the flip phone uh, and lots of pretend calls on the flip phone. If all, if this all sounds like a lot of trouble for a quarter cut of a $350 fine, consider this. Mr. Slapicus said he pulled in $64,000 in rewards in 2021 what? for simply paying attention on his daily walks for exercise. I would not expect to get, I would expect to get three a day without even looking. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Isn't this story crazy? <laughs> $64,000 in one yeah. year. Yep. Yep. Jesus Christ. I know. You know what? Is this a racket? Is he yeah. hiring people? This is uh, that blows mm -hmm. my mind. I know. Isn't that crazy? So, but the article goes on to explain uh, he is one of about 20 or so, only 20 or so busy citizen reporters who collectively submit some 85% of the complaints to the city, um, a data analysis found last year. They count in their number a pediatrician, several attorneys, and a retired police detective. The loose group trades tips and stories, calls itself idling warriors, and files hundreds of complaints per month. <laughs> uh, the IWs. Yeah. It's like uh, well, it's it's like the Warriors, the movie. Anyway, my favorite. Oh God. My yeah. favorite movie. Oh. <laughs> Uh, the pandemic and the city's increased reliance on deliveries has only brought more work. The city paid more than $724,000 in bounties last year alone and $1.1 million since 2019. For its share, the city collected $2.4 million in fines last year, up 24% from when the program began in Erdas three years ago. And yet several citizen reporters said in interviews that creaking bureaucracy, loopholes, waivers, and a seeming disinterest in issuing increasing numbers of fines has left untold penalties uncollected. For every fine it issues, the city's Department of Environmental Protection, which runs the program, seems to wave away others for reasons that, to the reporters, seem arbitrary. The name of the company is not legible on the truck door, even though the license plate would reveal the owner. The truck's engine isn't clearly audible on the video, even if smoke can be seen coming out of the exhaust pipe. 
Uh, quote, excessive idling has been illegal since the 1970s, and the city unveiled a renewed anti-idling program in 2020 with the kitschy endorsement of, yes, Billy Idol, the spiky-haired rock star of Rebel Yell and White Wedding fame. Billy never idles, went the tagline. And I actually saw that billboard like a bunch on the like during COVID and like a one highway that me and my friend were on a bunch. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, the world's a wild place, Jasmine. <laughs> well, New York yeah. is not a real place because are no. you serious? Yeah, no, I know. New York is like is literally like a cartoon sometimes. Um Anyway, quote, when it comes to the citizen reporting program, making the video is the easy part of the complaint. Now the work starts, Mr. Slapakis said. Videos and photos must be compressed and time-stamped and accompanied by screenshots of the identifying information. Originally, a, no- a notary signature was required, but today a sworn statement from the reporter is sufficient. There is more work. It is the responsibility of the citizen reporters after filing their complaints to track them through the system of summonses and court hearings. Many are surprised to learn that it is also their responsibility to determine whether a truck is a repeat offender and therefore liable for a larger fine and the reporter a larger bounty. The reporters said they spend hours combing through open data records to see if trucks have been cited before and wonder why the city doesn't do this in the first place. Uh, Angela Licata, a deputy commissioner with the department, quote, said the department is looking into identifying repeat offenders and possibly raising their fines. Uh, The reporters are also responsible for requesting their rewards months later once they have learned that a fine was paid. The city does not pay the reporters automatically. And that is the end of my reading from the story. It's a pretty good one, Jasmine. It's a a pretty good one. Oh, my God. I know. I just hear like, dun 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 um mr slapping is also what a name i know and i I might not be pronouncing it right but it's it's s-l-a-p-i-k-a-s and i think that's that would be a slapicus um i do wish i could meet that guy i mean like really what a what a gem oh it's it's uh it's it's definitely news to me i had no idea something like this existed but i'm kind of like it's intriguing yeah yeah it's specifically like the truck or the you know the the commercial vehicle is not parked it's just like sitting like it's sort of double parked with the engine running correct Mm -hmm. yeah that would be yeah yeah that or i don't think it has to be double parked even i think i mean again i'm not i haven't i've only read the article i think idling is just you're parked but your engine's running and you're not in traffic like for example you're not at like a stoplight um you could be in a parking spot i guess it wouldn't have to be double parked so like, um, you're also not actively, you know, stuff isn't actively being loaded, unloaded. I mean, even if it was, I think um, if you don't need the engine, right? Like if, cause you wouldn't need it on for you to load or unload a truck, right? Yeah. I think, I think it's the point like of just um, the pollution angle of it is. Um, That's so it, weird. I yeah. wonder why people, I mean, I'm, I'm not a driver and I've certainly mm-hmm. never driven like a commercial vehicle. Like mm-hmm. I know how to drive a car, but I'm like, I wonder why someone would be idle. Is it because they don't like, they're not properly parked. So they're technically not parked if, as long as the engine is not like, what's the, yeah, that might be a reason. I think that, you know, it could just be, um, just not paying attention and not 
caring. I don't know that maybe they're not paying the gas bill. I don't know. I, I think, um, yeah, I'm not really sure either. I know people idle sometimes and they're just like, yeah, it might be because they're double parked or it might be because they're like on their phone and not paying attention and they're waiting for something to happen. I'm not really sure. Yeah, um, I would like to know what the reason is for doing yeah. that because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like if you're not yeah. going anywhere, yeah, totally. why don't you just cut it off? Yeah. But, you know, it's, I haven't paid too much attention to it personally. Yeah. You know, one thing I, and I was reading this that I, I, and this is like a little bit of like, you know, a less lighthearted reading of it, but it is interesting that, you know, we talked, was it last week about the bounty program essentially on abortion in Texas? And it's interesting, you know, this is like the opposite end of the spectrum, I'd imagine. Um, And, you know, a lot, I mean, and it's funny. <laughs> I mean, some like some of it, you know, it's it's easy to look at this in a lighthearted way, but it is interesting. It, it seems to be a pattern of governments um, like deputizing citizens right. to do work. I mean, like I get that it's, you know, like I understand like environmentally why, but it's like, why are you outsourcing what is yeah. the city's responsibility onto people? And I do feel like they some of these people might be doing this for like in this particular case but they might also be the same types of people inclined Mm -hmm. to do it for other reasons where Mm -hmm. they feel like they are an authority of some kind over just other regular people and that is disturbing yeah it's disturbing and yeah it's disturbing and um yeah it's, it's it's also yeah, I just like the idea of like the government outsourcing bounty hunting and you know like these do these these are wildly different, right? Like a $350 fine is not $10,000 fine and right. it's not it's not it, it feels like less of like a private citizen um in like violation, it's right? Like space. It's, it's public space and it's it's I would assume it's most of these trucks are owned by co- like companies which are not into right. private individuals. Um so there there is a wide difference I think in like the the you know fine print here but yeah it is it is interesting making that comparison for sure yeah and i definitely see it's probably just a lot cheaper for the government to do something like this and Mm -hmm. say like yeah we're doing something than it is for them to actually take the types of actions that would bring an end to this i'm also wondering i would also be interested to know what are the racial and ethnic like Mm, breakdowns of mm -hmm. the drivers and the people that are doing this like the the iws the warriors because like it is like (laughs) that is interesting to read but it's like yeah i mean i know like as a black woman just Mm -hmm. existing in public there are definitely people that feel entitled to police you in a Mm -hmm. way that they wouldn't someone else who you know is a different color so i wonder you know if they're if that might play a role in it because at at least in my neighborhood and it could be my neighborhood a lot of the people that drive those types of vehicles like they tend to be non-white like Mm -hmm. visibly non-white mayor you know I don't know anyone's immigration status from looking at them so I would wonder if Mm -hmm. the same people that are so eager to do this yeah are they do, do does it like match or is there like a discrepancy there yeah where there's like an extra like will to be like yeah these people like they need to da, 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 i don't know mm-hmm. and then what the, what that happens is really to interesting. their job I, yeah. yeah that is really interesting those are all really interesting points i do wonder if it's a little because tr- i would imagine that a truck is is removed from that eye level in a way that i think 
which isn't saying that you're not right. I want, I do wonder, cause I, I feel like it, with the driver in a car and a personal car, you're like on eye level when you're walking by, but I wonder if this is a little more removed, but again, I, I you're right. Like we don't know until we like, and I don't even, we don't I have don't that even, data. I, there's that. And it's also, you know, even in cases where it's not like they can physically see the mm-hmm. person's color, but it could just be, even if you don't see them, like it might yeah. have a disproportionate issue on certain groups of people where it's like, yeah, that's the company's right. responsibility should like, that needs to be clear that you cannot do that. That these are the consequences. Yeah. So, you yeah, know, it's like, you're all making really good regular points. citizens do your job, you know, and that's yeah. not there that's but man cool. mr slap we gotta find a picture mr. of him and put i him know up. i think there, there might be in the article i have to check but he was also um he was like oh i don't want my cover blown so maybe he didn't allow oh for God. any oh no no, no there's a go photo yeah, he and go looking for him. <laughs> no he's i think he works mostly in manhattan but yeah um no there's photos on uh line if you want to see oh and one of these is in front i think of the old an old museum i used to i went with. anyway okay we are still picking music uh, for Women's History Month in honor of, uh, you know, women and music, I guess, for the song choices. So I decided to go with recent Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, the Go-Go's. Um, I don't know if you watched the ceremony at all, but I saw a clip and it was it was pretty awesome. Um, Drew Barrymore, like, did a whole speech about being a kid and listening to them and how inspiring they were growing up in, like, the punk scene and because I'm becoming rock stars um, at a time when female rock stars were not really a thing. Uh, And so this is one of my favorite songs of all time, and it is Vacation by the Go-Go's. can follow our social media accounts we have an instagram account and we also have a facebook account 
Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and here is Reese with our national news story. Happy Sunday, everyone. This is Reese Robinson with our national news updates. So I have drawn information from this section from a couple of different articles. The first one is from CNN.com. The title of the article is The Racist, Sexist, Misslinging of Katanji Brown Jackson is Disgraceful. And the author of that article is Penio E. Joseph. In the first days of Katanji Brown Jackson's U.S. Senate confirmation hearings as a nominee to become the first black woman associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, it's becoming clearer how long a journey it's been to get to this moment and the road that still remains to be traveled. Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn's final opening remarks Monday revealed the scope of what Jackson's up against. Blackburn's inaccurate and blatantly racist attempts to patronize Jackson while twisting her sterling record into a scarce narrative of GOP boogeyman, critical race theory, and the 1619 Project and controversies over transgender athletes and women's sports were staggering and yet unsurprising. Despite highly visible efforts by Republicans on the committee to discredit, humiliate, and smear Jackson, it is well worth remembering why her story matters to so many people. Her origin story as a young black girl who excelled at some of the best schools in America, served early in her professional career as a public defender, went on to clerk for Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer before rising to become the U.S. District Judge to be confirmed to the U.S. Court of Appeals, an example is an example of the best part of this nation's promise. Her story is one that embodies the best of America. The juxtaposition between Democratic and Republican senators' questions for Jackson Tuesday, the second day of proceedings, illustrated the toxic and growing partisan gulf that has transformed American politics from a noble calling to public service into a blood sport. Texas Senator Ted Cruz offered unintentional comic relief when he asked Jackson to opine about a book promoting anti-racism for infants and young children that he said, quote, is being taught in Georgetown Day School to students in pre-K through second grade, end quote. Cruz accused the Washington, D.C. school, where Jackson is on the board of trustees, of supporting critical race theory and demanded that she respond. Do you agree with this book being taught to the kids and the babies that babies are racist? The nominee, after a long pause, enough to indicate apparent contempt for the question, then replied, critical race theory has was taught in law school and not in K-12 public schools. She also made the point that Georgetown Day School, like the school where Amy where Justice Amy Coney Barrett sat on the board before her confirmation, is a private school. Tom Cotton of Arkansas and Missouri's Josh Hawley, two of the most conservative and Trump-loving elected officials in the nation, attempted to attack Jackson as being soft on crime and unusually lenient in sentencing child sex offenders, an assertion that the group of retired federal judges rejected, finding her sentences entirely consistent with that of other judges across the country. 
Democrat Dick Durbin, Illinois, chairman of the committee, offered Jackson a chance to address Hawley's allegations as laid out in his opening statement Monday. When Durbin asked Jackson what she thought when she heard Harley's allegations, she said, as a mother and a judge who has to deal with these cases, I was thinking that nothing could be further from the truth. She then outlined the seriousness with which she takes such cases and the harsh penalties that she has imposed. The charge that Jackson sentenced child sex offenders is less in, to less time in certain cases than prosecutors recommended and particularly of, is particularly offensive since it reflects a long-standing pattern in American history of attempting to pillory black women as being incapable of living up to virtuous standards of womanhood. From the days of Sojourner Truth's 1851 Ain't I a Woman speech that deplored the way in which privileges and promises of protection afforded to white women were denied their black counterparts, black women have struggled to have the full measure of their humanity recognized by the American legal and political institutions. So for the second portion, I just thought I would pull up uh, five interesting facts. This information is coming from an article uh, March 23rd on the AmericanProgress.org uh, website. And these are five facts that we can just take a look at about this completely overqualified woman um, that they are trying to tear down during these confirmation hearings. Well, that they did try. Uh, number one, upon confirmation, Judge Jackson would replace former Justice Stephen Breyer, the justice for whom she clerked from 1999 to 2000. Judge Jackson's clerkship experience provided her with an insider's view of the operations of the court, as well as deep knowledge of Justice Breyer's conscious building approach to the role of justice. Number two, the Senate has confirmed Judge Jackson three times. She was confirmed to the U.S. Sentencing Commission in 2009. She received bipartisan support for her appointment to the District of Columbia Circuit Court in 2013 and a unanimous amount of support for her appointment to the District of Columbia Court in 2021. Number three, Judge Jackson currently sits on the District of Columbia Circuit Court, which is widely considered the second most important court in the United States. Multiple Supreme Court justices, including the former Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Chief Justice John Roberts, served on the Circuit Court prior to their appointment to the Supreme Court. Number four, upon confirmation, Judge Jackson would not only have more experience than the four than four of the current justices combined. But she would also be the first and only justice with experience as a public defender. Judge Jackson served as an assistant public defender from February 2005 to June 2007 before returning to work in corporate law. As a 2020 report from the Center for American Progress outlined, judges with more diverse professional experience improve jurisprudence so that it better so that it better acknowledges people's unique lived experiences. Judge Jackson's experience as a public defender deepens her understanding of the U.S. justice system and how it touches people's lives. Number five, Judge Jackson has received numerous awards throughout her career. In 2021, Columbia University's Law School awarded her the Constance Baker Motley Award for Empowering Women of Color advancing the rights of people and demonstrating a legacy of giving back to the community. 
In her acceptance speech, Judge Jackson stated that the responsibility of being a judge means doing the work that is necessary to protect the rule of law and to promote equality and justice for all. It is vital that the United States has, has fair-minded justices who deeply commit to the principles of equality and justice for all. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's eminent qualifications represent her dedication to protecting and advancing human and civil rights. By confirming her to the U.S. Supreme Court, Congress would help ensure the court works for everyone. So that is the recap that I'd like to bring on uh, this week's events around um, these confirmation hearings. Uh, I just would like to say that uh, Judge Jackson's poise and demeanor never, ever was unsettled. She handled every question or concern with grace and an assertiveness that you expect from a judge. She didn't cower down or get flustered when they tried to make her feel that way. And I just think it's, you know, appalling that a woman of such incredible criteria, stature, uh, experience would have to face the basic racist bullshit that happens every day in this country. It's like, it doesn't even matter how far you go in life. What they see is someone that's different than them. What they see is someone that's changing the tide. And quite honestly, for this whole Supreme Court concept, ideal and strategy to actually make sense for the people not only is representation matter, but it also matters to have someone who has the experience of every level of the justice system. That way you can actually trust what this judge is saying that they have experience and that they are considering um, as much as they possibly can when doing their job. So fuck all these racist people <laughs> trying to tear her down. Uh, Miss Katanji Brown, just Jackson, you killed it this week and shout out to all the women who have had to deal over the years and years of their careers with microaggressions, racism, sexism, and all outright just being, um, scrutinized when all you did was stood up and did an excellent job. We salute you. So have you been watching any of the confirmation hearings? Yeah, I, I kind of stopped watching the official hearings, like, probably around the time Trump got into office. I can't remember. I used to be really into it. It was like, this is important political stuff. And I was like, oh, the whole system is, is <laughs> it's not real. Um, it doesn't matter. It's terrible. But, yeah. um, yeah. But that being said, like, this is really important. Uh, I have not been watching. Um, I know that, you know, a lot of the things that are happening, like what I've seen clips of, I would just get like very angry. <laughs> um, a lot of Republicans are going out of their way to do things like associate um, Katanji Brown Jackson with being lenient on child pornography, like Lindsey Graham was insinuating yeah. that, which was, you know, to I me, especially with a lot of, uh, with a lot of the QAnon stuff, it's like, this is like, trying mm -hmm. to put in people's minds these associations that don't really make sense between someone who to me mm -hmm. you know from what I've read about her and what I list I did listen to the daily podcast episode about um the hearings seems pretty mm -hmm. moderate but it's just you know in these types of situations just the fact that you exist as black people will try to link you to the most far left radical whatever even if you might be more like in the center or might be somewhat right yeah. of center on certain issues so yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And I, I was reading an NPR summary of sort of how things are going and the, the final roundup sort of, it's that, well, it says that overall Jackson is following the playbook of past nominees and being circumspect in her statements about her judicial philosophy. If the name of the game is getting confirmed, transparency, transparency is not a nominee's friend. And the nature of the partisan state of affairs means that the senators asking questions aren't always focused on the nominee either. Senators on both sides of the aisle use part of their questioning time to bemoan the role of dark money in the nominating process. So that's, that's interesting. It's all just like political fanfare, you know, and like playing a game. Um, Cause this, I mean, I, I think most people know how they're going to vote already. Like that's sort of, I think what's such a right. bummer about this whole thing is that it is just sort of like a kangaroo court, you know, like I don't think it's anyone theater. who's there. Yeah. It's theater. Everyone knows how they're going to vote already. Anyone who will be voting. It's for public so opinion too, of- I guess, which isn't nothing, but yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So speaking of theater, so the Supreme Court is 233 years old. Do you know how long like we've been doing like the country has been doing um, confirmation hearings, like public confirmation hearings for justice? Oh, no, I don't. Do you? Do you? Is this a leading question? Yeah, because, you know, I like those. <laughs> yeah, like how, no, like, I do not what, know. If, if, you, if you had to guess in what year. We started having public hearings for nominees for the Supreme Court. What year would you guess? Ooh, well, the the first one I know about that I could say happened for sure was the um, Clarence Thomas. They started. They started before that, a long time before either of us were born. So I Mm. saw a tweet. um, I'll try to see if I can pull it up. But someone told that you know they didn't have like it wasn't. Yeah, like they tweeted, they told. I like to say. Oh, quote. I I love that. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. Yeah, they told. So oh, I love that. From the Pew Re- this is from the Pew Research Center. It wasn't until 1916, in, with the appointment of Louis D. Brandeis um, mm-hmm. under Woodrow Wilson, that the ju- the Senate Judiciary Committee held public hearings on a nominee. Brandeis was the first Jewish justice. And he was also Mm. controversial because of his legal activism in support of workers' rights and social reform movements Mm. um, in opposition of things like banks, railroads, insurers, and big business in general. Um, And on NPR, there was a legal historian named Scott Powell who um, was speaking in 2009 about the history of um, the public hearings. So Brandeis did not show up to his hearings but the first nominee to mm-hmm. show up to his own hearing was Felix Frankfurter in 1939, who was also Jewish, and he was also a controversial appointment, especially for his defense of Sacco and Vanzetti, the Italian anarchists during the 20s. And then Potter Stewart, who was nominated in 1959, he's noted as being one of the first to actually answer their questions. So like you mentioned how um, Katanji... Um, Brown Jackson is there's like a history of being circumspect in your answers so like Brandeis and Frank Footer like they just were not respond like they they were like my record speaks for itself Brandeis didn't Mm. appear at all but Potter Mm. Stewart in the late 50s like he actually showed up and was answering the questions but was starting this um, pattern of being circumspect like not telling them what they obviously wanted to hear 
Um, and the and Scott Powell was noting that at that time in the late 50s, Southern Democrats were fully hostile to the Supreme Court because of its desegregation decisions and conservative mm. Republicans were worried about the Supreme Court over national security issues. So Stewart got a fair grilling, but like other nominees, he didn't provide them any answers. So yeah, it just, I, I thought that was interesting. Mm. Like when I looked it up, like how the goalpost moves, depend, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because it's someone who they have an identity or an ideology, or you're assuming that because of their identity, they have an ideology that is like a threat mm-hmm. to, you know, what we have as like a white power structure in this country. So. Oh, that is so interesting. That is so interesting. And it, you can also see how it kind of like it started in 1916 and how that could have, that's like the forefather to the McCarthy hearings in a lot of ways, you know, like prove yourself to us and like that public political theater. I don't know if that's true. I didn't do a PhD on this stuff, but it makes sense. I mean, no, you don't, you don't need to have yeah. like, that makes a yeah. lot of sense. You know, it's like things or, you know, having you're you're exposed to so much like just putting someone yeah. on the stand like can be so taxing like you mentioned Anita Hill earlier but like if you go back mm-hmm. and you watch mm-hmm. like what they put her through and like that being yeah. a precursor to you know what you go through like as a woman if you're trying to say this person took advantage of me this person harassed me they ran her over the coals and it was mm-hmm. so nasty and so ugly, you know, so mm-hmm. just like that spectacle and that performance of like trying to rip someone apart, like it's so it's terrible. It yeah, it does a lot it's... to a person. And like you can you can see the yeah. difference from, you know, a a woman, a white woman, a white man that's like right leaning versus, you know, black person, black woman that is assumed to be more left, like the nature mm-hmm. of the questions and Mm-hmm. You know, the questioning of your intelligence. I hope she gets nominated and appointed. I mean, I hope she gets appointed. She's already been nominated. If you get this far in the process, it's usually, you know, pretty sure that you will be. And like yeah. there is a Democratic majority. And then with the vice president's vote, uh, right, it seems right, pretty right. sealed. But yeah, there's yeah. a lot of different like decisions that are like hanging in the balance with a very right wing heavy mm-hmm. court at the moment. So it mm-hmm. would be a shame if you weren't to be confirmed for any reason. So, yeah. So the song that I selected this week to accompany this story, um, it's just a female empowerment track. We are still celebrating women's history month. So this one always gets me going. This song is called my power and it's by Ninja Beyonce Bisawa, Yimmy Alede, Tierra Mac, Moon Sonelli, and DJ Lag. We'll be right back.
poison the lead. Who you wanna be? I'm who they wanna be. B E A U T Y E. Never seen so much rage from a queen. Rage from a queen. Queen so strong, thought she was a machine. Girl in your dreams, Sinclair regime. Turn to the max, can't forget Maxine. Refer to me as a goddess, I'm tired of being modest. A hundred degrees the hottest. If we're being honest, ebony, anybody. Black people win, they say we're being demonic. Angel in disguise, I hate I have to disguise it. Why you got to despise it? Rich in your mind, is why I'm making deposits. Here we all are power, it's time to realize it. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, For this week, I will be discussing a world news story. Uh, This information comes from the Associated Press, and this is an article that just came out today, Wednesday the 23rd, when we're recording. Uh, This episode is going to air on Sunday, March the 27th. Uh, The title of the article is Taliban Cancels Higher Education for Girls Despite Pledges. It was written by Kathy Gannon. Um, I'm going to read a large portion of it, but some of it has been cut um, for the sake of time. Afghanistan's Taliban rulers unexpectedly decided against reopening schools Wednesday to girls above the sixth grade reneging on a promise and opting to appease their hardline base at the expense of further alienating the international community. The surprising decision confirmed by a Taliban official is bound to disrupt efforts by the Taliban to win recognition from potential international donors at a time when the country is mired in a worsening humanitarian crisis. The international community has urged Taliban leaders to reopen schools and give women their right to public space. The reversal was so sudden that the education ministry was caught off guard on Wednesday, the start of the school year, as were schools in parts of the Afghan capital of Kabul and elsewhere in the country. Some girls in higher grades returned to school only to be told to go home. Aid organizations said the move exacerbated the uncertainty surrounding Afghanistan's future as the Taliban leadership seems to struggle to get on the same page as it shifts from fighting to governing. Wahidullah Hashmi, external relations and donor representative with the Taliban-led administration, told the Associated Press the decision was made late Tuesday night. We don't say they, they will be closed forever, Hashmi added. Earlier in the week, a statement by the education ministry had urged all students to return when classes resumed Wednesday. On Tuesday, ministry spokesman Malvi Azid Ahmed Rayan had told AP that all girls would be allowed back to school, although the Taliban administration would not insist on it in those areas where parents were opposed or where schools could not be segregated. 
the decision to postpone the return of girls at the higher grade levels appeared to be a concession to the rural and deeply tribal backbone of the hardline Taliban movement that in many parts of the countryside are reluctant to send their daughters to school. Girls have been banned from school beyond the sixth grade in most of the country since the Taliban's return. Universities opened earlier this year in much of the country, but since taking power, the Taliban edicts have been erratic. While a handful of provinces continued to provide education for all, most provinces closed educational institutions for girls and women. In the capital of Kabul, private schools and universities have operated uninterrupted. The religiously driven Taliban administration fears going forward with enrolling girls beyond the sixth grade could alienate their rural base, Hashmi said. The leadership hasn't decided when or how they will allow girls to return to school, he said. Um, so again, that was in the Associated Press. It was written by Kathy Gannon. Um, I would encourage you to read the full thing uh, because I had to cut some of it out. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Justin. I hadn't heard that yet. Um my heart goes out to the girls and and families there who face such like uncertainty in all of this. And I, I, and everyone there who's facing a ton of uncertainty um, with this. And it's really, it's, it's really baffling. I mean, it's not baffling, but it's also like, why, like, why can't girls get educated? You know, like if they want to, like, it's, 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 it's like, what's wrong with education, you know, at its, at its heart. Yeah, I mean, and we do know that um, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but women and girls like having access to education is huge as far as like the health and stability of families just in general. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, obviously, like I feel terrible for, you know, girls that were excited to start the school year and then to have, you know, such a swift change so quickly um, after being told that they could go like that's extremely difficult. I also, I want to encourage people to read this article. It's called The Other Afghan Women. Mm-hmm. It was written by Anand Gopal, A-N-A-N-D-G-O-P-A-L, in The New Yorker uh, in September of last year. Uh, it's a very, it's a long read, but I think it's very necessary because the writer is speaking directly to women in rural Afghanistan as opposed to just sort of talking about them as, you know, in theory, Mm, like you get mm -hmm. to hear like how they feel and what's going on. And I think that that's a needed perspective. So I don't know if it's not a summary, but you know, like the little blurb that's under the title of the article, it said more than 70% of Afghans do not live in cities. In rural areas, life under the U.S.-led coalition and its Afghan allies became pure hazard. Even drinking tea in a sunlit field or driving to your sister's wedding was a potentially deadly deadly gamble. So I think one of the things in that long read that was interesting was that um, the difference in life experience if you were living in a major city in Afghanistan versus living in the countryside was so vast Mm -hmm. that, you know, and there's women who are, uh, one woman named Pizarro who lives in the rural country, who lives in the countryside was saying they are giving rights to women and they are giving rights to Kabul women and they are killing women here. 
Is this justice, said another woman named Marzia from Pan Calais. This is not women's rights when you are killing us, killing our brothers, killing our fathers. Yeah, and I think when we do world stories, I'm I'm glad you bring that up. Like I do struggle with commenting on something that I just have so little personal experience with. And I think just, you know, as I get older, you know, because I think when I was younger, everything felt much more black and white. And then the older I get, the more I realize that like my own perspective as an American, like does not belong everywhere. Like, like the cultural issues that we have that I'm familiar with, like cannot be mapped to other places in the world one-to-one. But then, you know, there's things where it's like, like just like blanket statement, like girls can't get educated. And it's like, you're like, but why, you know? And there's things where it's like, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, there's, there's like core values that I, you know, I believe in that I feel, you know, okay. And then I, I could ask questions like why not or why? Yes. Um, but it, it's hard to, yeah, I struggle with how much to comment because I just have so little personal knowledge. So again, I think Jasmine, you're right. Like, like hearing directly from people with those experiences is the right way to learn about these things. It was an eye-opening read. Like I read it when it came out and it really stuck with me. It really stuck with me, you know, because they're describing things like, you know, they have brothers, cousins, husbands that just, you know, they go out one day to go to work and then they Mm -hmm. never come back, Mm -hmm. you know? So if you have, or like people who were known in their own community to have been like oppressive and like abusive people that were somehow, you know, under the Americans, that same person was now given like more power Mm -hmm. to be even worse, you know? So I do, I do feel like, you know, I'm sure a lot of these women, they do want to go to school. Like they're, they aren't opposed to like education, but it's like the way, like how to implement it and who is going to implement it is really Mm -hmm. important because, you know, the article talked a lot about like these outside international organizations and it's like but what does that look like Mm -hmm. I hope they do mention you know there's a lot of um it seems like there's going to be a lot of change or potentially a lot of change in the cabinet Mm -hmm. um, and that there are people that consider themselves to be pragmatists in the government that want to stick to you know their religious identity but they also are more open to Mm -hmm you know, more progress, but then they are also have their opposition that are way more hard lines. So like, there's a lot of shaking up that might happen. And a lot of the religious justifications for it it isn't really religious. It's like a cultural or political thing. It's not in the actual book that you can't learn. So, you know, I hope I'm hoping for a better outcome for the girls. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's unfortunate that there's this setback right now. Yeah. Definitely. And um, you have a, we had to wait for this story. We were going to do it a while ago, but you have a, an interesting uh, SpongeBob I, adjacent story. I do. So I did mention, I, I don't know if this got cut from when I thought like we ran out of time in a previous show to include this, but like, I'm really into, I was really into sunken ships as a kid. And I think I'm comfortable saying I still, you know, it still gives me like fun shivers, like talking about it, like shiver me timbers, I guess. Um, but oh, wow. I, don't know, I, I just, I just, that just came, I was a, a little 
Anyway, so I got the information for the story from a March 9th New York Times article by Henry Fountain titled At the Bottom of an ICC, One of History's Great Wrecks is Found. Explorers and researchers battling freezing temperatures have located endurance. Ernest Shackleton's ship that sank in the Arctic in 1915. I also want to note that the photos in this article are really cool, so I recommend you check them out. And the article explains, quote, The wreck of endurance has been found in the Antarctic 106 years after the historic ship was crushed in pack ice and sank during an expedition by the explorer Ernest Shackleton. A team of adventurers, marine archaeologists, and technicians located the wreck at the bottom of the Weddell Sea, east of the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, using undersea drones. Battling sea ice and freezing temperatures, the team had been searching for more than two weeks in a 150-square-mile area around where the ship went down in 1915. Uh, Endurance, a 144-foot, three-masted wooden ship, holds a revered place in polar history because it spawned one of the greatest survival stories in the annals of exploration. Uh, Quote, the first images of the ship since those taken by Shackleton's photographer, Frank Hurley, revealed parts of the vessel in astonishing detail. An image of the stern showed the name Endurance above a five-pointed star, a holdover from before Shackleton bought the ship when it was named Polaris. Another showed the rear deck and the ship's wheel. Uh, Quote, Menson Bound, the ship's exploration director and a marine archaeologist who has discovered many shipwrecks, uh, I'm personally jealous, Uh, said Endurance was the finest he had ever seen. It is upright, clear of the seabed, and in a brilliant state of preservation, he said. Endurance's relatively pristine appearance was not unexpected given the cold water and the lack of wood-eating marine organisms in the Weddell Sea that have uh, ravaged shipwrecks elsewhere. Quote, the hunt for the wreck, which cost more than $10 million, provided by a... uh, provided by a donor who wished to remain anonymous, was conducted from from a South African icebreaker that left Cape Town in early February. Uh, Quote, under the terms of the Antarctic Treaty, the six-decade-old pact intended to protect the region, the wreck is considered a historical monument. The submersibles did not touch it. The images and scans will be used as the basis for educational materials and museum exhibits. A documentary is planned as well. Shackleton left England aboard Endurance with a crew of 27 in 1914, bound for a bay on the Weddell Sea that was meant to be the starting point for an attempt by him and a small party to be the first to cross Antarctica. Shackleton never made it to the Pole or beyond, but his leadership in rescuing all his crew and his exploits, which included an 800-mile open boat journey across the treacherous Southern Ocean to the island of South Georgia, made him a hero in Britain. Shackleton was tripped up by the Weddell's notoriously thick, long-lasting sea ice, which results from a circular current that keeps much ice within it. In early January in 1915, Endurance became stuck less than 100 miles from its destination and drifted with the ice for more than 10 months as the ice slowly crushed it. As the ship became became damaged, the crew set up camp on the ice and lived on the ice until it broke up five months after the ship sank. Quote, in addition to the expedition team, several ice researchers were on board, including Stephanie Arndt of the uh, Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany. Uh, Dr. Arndt, who studies how Arctic sea ice may change as the world warms because of human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases, and others spent much time out on the ice drilling cores. On Monday, she said on Twitter that they had collected 630 samples from 17 locations, which she called an incredible number. 
So that is my story. Um, it was I, I had a I had a good time reading it. Um, and I thought it was cool also that they actually, you know, included some, you know, there was this huge look to the past, but they included a researcher looking to the future as well and the impacts of climate change, which I thought was a good use of their tools and resources. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm someone who's deathly afraid of water, just especially large bodies of water. So I respect people that do that work or that get you know excited about it because Lord knows I wouldn't do it. Uh Um, But yeah, that's that's great. It's fascinating. It is. It is. Hell yeah. Okay, so that's it for this week's episode of Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, We're going to close out with a song by another great Aries. So the day that we're recording, March 23rd, it is her birthday. Mm. Um, This is someone who is one of my favorite funk singers. She has been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame three times solo and four times as a member of a band. She's from Chicago. She was a Black Panther. Uh, so this song is by Yvette Marie Stevens, or her name now is Shaka Khan, and this is I'm Every Woman. Thanks for listening, and have a good rest of your week. Bye. Bye. Proud to present four amazing bands at an outstanding local venue for an evening of rock and music. Join us on Friday, May 20th at 7:30 for a night with seventh grade girl fight, dirt bikes, barrette, and castle black at none other than Ridgewood's own Bar Frida, 801 Seneca Avenue. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased at the venue. <laughs>